Hallelujah. Everybody ready to hear the word this morning? Did anybody bring the word this morning? Oh, I got it. Okay. Hallelujah. Actually, this is going to go somewhat with some of what you were speaking in that offering message, Michelle. So, praise God. Um, but we we talk a lot when we're getting preparing for this stuff, so it's it's not like okay. Hallelujah. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Mark eleven twenty three twenty four. And if you've been around this church or Word of Faith churches at any length of time, this is a keynote scripture. And Jesus is speaking here. He says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit Open our eyes today and make your word come alive in us. Help us to see what changes we need to make in our lives and we purpose to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your son. In the name of Jesus, amen. When my wife spoke last, she mentioned that most of the times we have the opportunity to preach, it seems that the Lord leads us to speak on truths that we've let slip in our own lives. And today is no exception. I want to talk this morning on a subject that has brought the wrath of the church Pharisees onto Word of Faith preachers, calling them the name it and claim it and blab it and grab it bunch. The subject I'm referring to, of course, is confession. And while some of that criticism has been rightly earned by those Christians who have gotten in the ditch regarding faith and confession, much of the criticism, in my opinion, stems from a misunderstanding of these principles, which are clearly taught in the Word of God. Back in 1987, a minister by the name of Charles Capps wrote an excellent book called Dynamics of Faith and Confession, specifically to dispel some of these misconceptions. And I'm going to be pulling from some of that uh, book throughout this message. When I talk about confession, I'm not referring to the sacrament in the Catholic Church. And I know a few of you here came from that background. You know, that sacrament where you kneel down on a padded kneeler in a small booth and tell a priest your sins. As I was thinking about this, the Catholic church I grew up in had a confessional that consisted of three booths. One in the middle for the priest and one on each side of the priest for the penitents. And there was only a thick velvet curtain over the entrance to each booth. I remember as a kid dreading going to confession. Because while I was kneeling in my booth, waiting for the person in the opposite booth to finish telling the priest their sins, I couldn't help but overhear what they were saying. And then I'd wonder as a kid, maybe I should make something up. So my sins were just as interesting as the person's in the other booth. And then I realized, well, no, then I'd be lying, which meant I'd have to add that to my list of sins to confess. I was so glad when I got saved and realized I only had to talk to the Lord When I missed it. And I found out he is faithful and just to forgive. Hallelujah. No, I'm not talking about confessing our sins today. I'm talking about confessing our faith and what God has promised in his word. Let's look again at our text from Mark 11.23. Earlier in that chapter, 
Jesus and his disciples were heading into Jerusalem from Bethany. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus was hungry. He approached a fig tree, which he thought might have some fruit on it. But he found nothing but leaves. And Jesus cursed the fig tree, and his disciples heard him. Now, it's tempting to wonder. If Jesus had been able to have breakfast that morning, let's say there was a McDonald's on the way, and would he have still driven the money changers out of the temple and turned their tables over later that day? I remember hearing one preacher say when he first read the story about him turning, uh, driving the money changers out, he said to God, God, it looks like your son had some ang- anger issues. Well, the truth is Jesus only did what he saw the Father do. And he only said what he heard the Father say. When we get to Mark 11:20, it's one day later after he had cursed the fig tree. And once again, Jesus and his disciples are talk, walking past the fig tree, which is now dried up from the roots. In Mark 11:21, Peter said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed is withered away. In verse 22, Jesus said, have faith in God. Some translations say, have the faith of God. Then in verse 23, he showed them how faith works. Let's look again at Mark 11:23. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, most Bible scholars agree Jesus didn't mean a literal mountain here. He was using a metaphor. He was speaking of the power of faith in the face of impossible situations. So, in fact, let's take the reference to mountain out of this verse and get to the crux of what Jesus is teaching his disciples about operating in the faith of God. <clears throat> I want to read that this, this way. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. I want to read that again. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Three times Jesus uses the word says, and only once does he refer to believing. It's as though he's driving home the truth to his disciples, that if you want to operate in the same kind of faith as me, if you want to have the faith of God, then you're going to have to speak what you believe if you want to get results. So do we see another example of God saying something and getting results? We do. Let's look at Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. You'll notice in these verses that the water was there, the darkness was there, and the Spirit of God was there. But nothing happened until words were spoken. When God spoke, light came into existence. His words released his creative power. And before you shut down on me and say, well, yeah, that was God, what's that got to do with me? Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 12? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And in 1 John 4:17 we read, 
as he, Jesus, is, so are we in this world. The very fact that Jesus was showing his followers in Mark 11 how to operate in the God kind of faith tells us it's not only possible for us to do the same, but he expects us to do it. Why words? What's the importance of speaking? In Proverbs 18.21, in the Amplified Classic Version, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they who indulge in it shall eat the fruit of it, for death or life. So the writer of Proverbs is saying, words have the power to bring a harvest of death or life to the speaker. Does that mean everything you will say will come to pass? No. Remember our text in Mark 11:23, whoever says and does not doubt in his heart but believes that those things he says will be done, he's the one who will have whatever he says. Just saying something doesn't cause it to happen. Faith is involved. How do we get faith? Through words. Romans 10:17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Vine's Greek Dictionary says that the word translated hearing is more than just hearing audibly the word spoken. It includes the idea of receiving the word spoken. So this explains how one person can hear an anointed word spoken from the pulpit and be radically changed by it. And another can hear the same message and be completely unaffected. Both heard the message with their ears, but only one received it and allowed it to get inside of them in their spirit, which allowed faith to grow. Jesus likened this process to planting seed. In Matthew 13, 19 through 23, this is out of the Passion Translation, Jesus explained the parable of the sower to his disciples. He said, What was sown along the path represents the one who listens to the message of the kingdom, but doesn't understand it. The adversary then comes and snatches away what was sown into his heart. The one sown on gravel represents the person who gladly hears the kingdom message, but his experience remains shallow. Shortly after he hears it, troubles and persecutions come because of the kingdom message he received. Then he quickly falls away, for the truth didn't sink deeply into his heart. The one sown among thorns represents one who receives the message, But all of life's busy distractions, his divided heart, and his ambition for wealth result in suffocating the kingdom message, and it becomes fruitless. And in verse 23, he says, But what was sown on good, rich soil represents the one who hears and fully embraces the message of the kingdom. Their lives bear good fruit. Some yield a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 times as much as was sown. The seed is the Word of God. Just like a seed that a farmer plants, the seed of the Word has life inside of it, an embryo of the thing that the Word promises. Given the right conditions, that seed will grow and eventually manifest in the physical realm as the tangible fruit of that promise. You see, faith is the ability to conceive God's words in our heart. That brings into our spirit being, our heart, a spiritual force greater than our physical circumstances. Our human spirit is the production center. That's where the kingdom of God resides, in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And this production center is capable of producing everything from God's word that you put in it. Promises of healing, salvation, prosperity, righteousness, peace, and joy, just to name a few. We said faith comes by hearing and receiving the word. In order to hear it, it must be spoken. You can get a level of faith by listening to a preacher speak to you like I am this morning. But faith will come to you more quickly if you speak it out of your mouth. Why is that? Because the words you speak affect you more than anyone else. I'm going to illustrate that right now. Say this out loud. I am just like Jesus. Say it again. I am just like Jesus. What did that do to you on the inside? Did it give you pause to think, is that really true what I'm saying? Well, just a minute ago, I read 1 John 4:17. As he, Jesus, is, so are we in this world. Isn't that the same as saying you are just like Jesus? And yet, when you say it for yourself, it registers differently on you, doesn't it? In Florida, the state college system has a requirement called the Gordon Rule. It requires that a student demonstrate college-level writing skills by writing several thousand words in a variety of subjects and assignments to earn their degree. The reason is you can't write intelligently about a topic without having assimilated a sufficient amount of understanding of the subject matter. I experience that every time I sit down to write a sermon. I think I know a lot about a topic until I start putting words down on paper. And then I quickly realize I need to do more studying. Writing as a way of solidifying your thinking on a topic. I believe speaking the word out loud has a similar effect. When your ears hear you speaking a truth from the word of God, your spirit on the inside gets excited. But oftentimes your mind goes, wait, what did you just say? But as you continue to speak it, it gets stronger in your spirit. And your mind begins to align with what you believe. We call that renewing the mind. Proverbs 3.3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. God's word is truth, isn't it? Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, which is your spirit. So how are you going to write God's word on your spirit? Psalm 45.1 out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, My heart is moved by a noble theme. As I recite my verses to the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. As you confess the truth of God's word out loud, your mouth, your tongue is etching those words into your human spirit. Let me say that again. As you confess the truth of God's word out loud, your tongue is etching them into your human spirit. Hallelujah. This is a process doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to build faith. And it doesn't happen just because you confess God's promise one time or 300 times. Confessing God's word needs to become a way of life. Amen. It may take weeks or months for you to develop faith to the point where you know that you know that you know you believe what you are confessing is really happening. Amen? Amen. But you will get there. Some argue that confession of God's word is nothing more than a mechanical formula. 
But the Bible is clear that faith is a spiritual law. And it's a law that works by applying confession. Charles Capps, who I mentioned earlier, was a pilot. And he said, confession is to your faith as thrust is to an airplane. Without confession of God's word, your faith will never get off the ground. And your faith will never rise any higher than your confession. That's an important thing to remember. Your faith will never rise any higher than the words coming out of your mouth. Amen? You might be thinking, I don't understand how faith, which is something invisible, can affect the change in my circumstances in this physical, tangible world that I live in. Well, think about this. Every time you fly in a commercial airplane, you're putting faith in things you can't see and don't understand. You expect air that you can't see to flow across a wing design which you don't understand, fast enough to cause the law of lift, which you can't see or understand, to enable an airplane that weighs over 85 tons to fly like a bird and get you safely to your destination. So don't tell me you don't have faith. (laughs) Jesus said, if you believe that what you say will be done, you'll have whatever you say. So we not only need to have faith in the Word of God, we need to have faith in our own words. Amen? amen. If you spent much of your life using your words carelessly or disingenuously, saying the opposite of what you mean, you're going to have to make some adjustments if you want to walk in this walk of faith. Begin harnessing your tongue to say only what you want to come to pass. Charles Capps said, If Jesus came walking down the aisle in this church today, touching everyone and telling them, after I touch you, every word you say will happen just like you say it. Would that change your vocabulary? Caps said in most churches, if Jesus was to do that, half the congregation would jump up and say, that thrills me to death. And he said you'd spend the next several days burying all the ones that died. (laughs) Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. What you believe, you speak. What you speak, you believe stronger every time you speak it. This process causes faith to come. When God makes his word come alive to you in a certain area and impresses in your spirit that this is what you're to do, and you lay hold of it and speak it with your mouth, it will come to pass for you. Amen. Amen. I'm going to just, this is a story I had told once before, but I think it bears repetition. Several years back, my wife and I were lying in bed one night, and I asked her, what are we believing God for right now? <clears throat> and we couldn't think of anything specific. And how many of you know you should be believing God for something all the time? And I just said, well, let's believe God for $100. We didn't need $100 for anything specific at the time. It's just the figure that came to my mind. So we agreed in prayer for the $100 using Mark 11:24 and Matthew 18:19 as the foundation for our faith. And then we thanked the Lord out loud for the $100. No big deal, right? 
The next morning was Sunday. We went to church, and this woman, who was a professor at USF, I, I don't know if that's the greater miracle there, that, <laughs> but she was a godly woman. She came up to my wife and told her the Lord spoke to her that morning about giving us some money. She handed my wife $100. I don't think we would have been more ecstatic if she had given us $1,000. Maybe a little, but... But it was just such a direct confirmation of what we had just prayed and confessed the night before. Now, most times it doesn't happen that quickly, but this was just one of those times, and it was just... uh, it, it was a good lesson for us. So you might be wondering, does God really put that much emphasis on our words? I want to look at two passages of Scripture to find out if he does. In Luke chapter 1, we see the account of the angel Gabriel appearing to the priest Zacharias, who was burning incense on the temple altar in the holy place. Now, like Abraham and Sarah, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were childless and were both very old. Let's pick up at Luke 1, 12 through 18. And when Zechariah saw the angel, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. So clearly, Zacharias had been praying for a child, right? And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this angel is saying this child that I'm promising you right now, will fulfill the promise prophecy given in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. And Zechariah would have, would have recognized that. And this is Zechariah's response to the angel. How shall I know this? I like the way the Passion Translation puts it. How do you expect me to believe this? <laughs> Let me just tell you, those are not words of faith that, that he was speaking. He said, for I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Probably not something you'd also want to talk about your wife in that way to to an angel. But And there are some promises of God here that are unconditional. I want to just bring this up. In other words, there are conditions that have to be met for them to come to pass. We've been looking at Mark 11, 23, and, and the underlying thought there is if, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then these things will come to pass. So it's conditional. You've got a role to play in that, right? But there are other promises of God that are unconditional. Fulfillment rests solely with the Lord. And he will not allow anything to get in the way of their fulfillment. One example is God's covenant to never again destroy the entire earth by flood. So you can bank on that. When Zacharias questions the validity, validity of Gabriel's words, the angel's response to me, confirms that this is an unconditional promise and God would not allow anything to stand in the way of its fulfillment. And let's just read what their angel's response was. He said, and you can sort of hear that his voice was a bit stern at this point. He said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, 
and was sent to speak to you and bring to you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So God took action to be sure that Zacharias would not continue to speak unbelief until God's declaration came to pass. In fact, it wasn't until Zacharias did get in agreement with the angel's words and wrote that the child's name will be John, that his tongue was loosed and he could speak again. So clearly God does value or put emphasis on the words that we speak. They mean something to him. A few verses down in the same chapter in Luke, the same angel, Gabriel, who was busy that month, appears to Mary with a similar announcement. Let's pick up in Luke 1, 30-35. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel mentions at least three different prophecies that will be fulfilled by this child's birth. So based on what we read about Zacharias, my thought is that the same (laughs) emphasis on words comes into play here. But you'll notice there's just a very subtle difference in Mary's response. She said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Zacharias wants to know how he can be sure of the angel's words. Mary wants to know, how's this going to happen? Which means she believes the words. She just doesn't understand how it's going to come about. After the angel Gabriel explains to her how it will happen, Mary says in verse 38, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. The Passion Translation says, As his servant, I accept whatever he has for me. May everything you have told me come to pass. Can you see the subtle difference between what she said and what Zacharias said? Faith is the ability to conceive what God has declared. Mary conceived God's word in the womb of her spirit. She put herself in agreement with it, and her mouth testified accordingly. Now, there are times in life when seemingly impossible circumstances can arise in our lives without warning, and it's critical that we guard our tongue at such times. I'm going to put my wife on the pedestal right now, it just because um, I, I'll never forget, and it still chokes me, I... I this wasn't part of my message, but when uh, she was given the word from the doctor that she had this tumor on her ovary, the first words that came out of her mouth, I refuse to fear. She said it multiple times, I refuse to fear. And that encouraged me. That helped build me up, kept me from getting into fear as well. And we walked it out in glory to God. It was victorious. But, um, just, just a little side note. So there are times that you might be faced with situations where your immediate result is you want to fear and start speaking fear. 
I want to close by looking at one more scripture that demonstrates how one woman refused to give in to fear when the worst tragedy possible for a mother happened to her. This is an excellent story. I'm going to, it's several verses, if you can just stay with me. It's, this is another amazing woman of God. We never know her, her real name. She's just a Shunammite woman. And we see the story of Elijah and the wealthy woman from Shunem, the woman who has never named recognized Elijah as a holy man of God, invited him to her home for a meal whenever he was in the area. She eventually asked her husband to have a room built on the roof for Elijah. So Elijah had a place to stay when he was visiting. The owners of the house we moved into, I heard Shell talking about our house today, were ministers, and they had did the same thing. They built, they converted the garage into a room for traveling ministers yeah. with based on this concept here. We've turned it into a garage for traveling cars now. So. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, this is what this woman do, did for, for Elijah. And uh, Elisha wanted to show his gratitude for her kindness and asked his servant to find out what she needed. And the woman said her family took good care of her. She needed nothing. But Elisha's servant mentioned to Elisha that the woman had no son. And this is a big deal back in those days. This meant the woman suffered the shame of being a barren woman. And her husband had no heir to carry on his name. So Elisha told the woman that next year she'd be holding a son in her arms. The woman's response was, Oh, man of God, don't deceive me. Get my hopes up. This response would indicate she didn't have complete faith in Elisha's words at this point. But by the following year, she had a son. Now let's pick up in 2 Kings 4, 18-36. One day when her child was older, she went out to help his father. He went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. So the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and left him there. She sent a message to her husband, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Why go today, he asked. It's neither a new moon festival or a Sabbath, which would be typical times she would have seen the prophet. But she said, it will be all right. Another translation says, all will be well. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down until I tell you to do. She's about to travel a day's journey of almost 20 miles to get to the prophet while her little boy lays dead on the prophet's bed. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elijah saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask, is everything all right with you, your husband and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything is fine. All is well. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She's deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. Then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elijah said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. 
But the boy's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elijah returned with her. Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him the child is still dead. When Elijah arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone, shut the door behind him, and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once, and then stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother. And when she came in, Elisha said, Here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. She took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Not once did the Shunammite woman give voice to her fears. And yet you know, thoughts of fear were bombarding her mind like machine gun bullets on that 20-hour ride to the prophets. She didn't have Mark 11.23 to rest on, but she practiced it nevertheless. When the prophet's servant asked if everything was all right, she spoke what she believed. Everything is fine. She did what she knew to do. She believed God to do the rest. Amen? God's word conceived in the heart, then formed with the tongue, and spoken out of the mouth, becomes a spiritual force, releasing the ability of God in your life. Your success and your usefulness in this world is going to be measured by your confession and by the tenacity with which you hold fast to that confession under all circumstances. Let's make our lips do their duty. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your words are top priority for us. They are spirit and they are life. Help us to set a guard over our mouths and keep a watch over the door of our lips. So we speak only what you say about the situations in our lives. And as we do, we know faith will continue to grow inside of us. And we will see your mighty hand move in our lives. Mountains will move. And blessings will come. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.